0: Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Sexy Liberal podcast network in association with Mother She Wrote Media. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnson in D.C. Today, David Pepper is back to talk about his new book, Saving Democracy. It's a follow-up to his last book, which was Laboratories of Autocracy. So this book is more about what we can do as voters to help save democracy. Lots to talk about, but before we get into it. The Start Me Up podcast is independent, listener-funded, and woman-run. Visit patreon.com startmeup to see the variety of tiers offered, including the option to get two bonus What's Up episodes per week, kind of like my online journal where I get a little more personal and talk about whatever is on my mind. There's also an ad-free tier with a much shorter intro. Just visit patreon.com slash startmeup. Now please enjoy my conversation with David Pepper. Welcome back to the show, David.
1: Thank you. Great to
0: be with you again. Mr. Important you are. Everything you tweet is so important, and I'm so happy to share it, and your books are so important. (laughs) So um, I'm glad that you're here with me today to talk about your new book. Um, I'm just going to say this real quick, and then I want you to talk. So your new book is titled Saving Democracy, and it's a follow-up to Laboratories of Autocracy. So I just want you to give us a brief overview about your first book, and then launch into what your new book is about and why you wrote it
1: sure so as as we talked a couple of years ago the the first book was all about the fact that that while everyone watches washington dc and talks about donald trump and marjorie taylor green the truth is that the most relentless assault on democracy is actually not there it's in states and state houses uh gerrymandering them suppressing the other side and then passing all these extremist laws and and we wrote about that and talked about it two years ago or less than two years ago Obviously, that's playing out as bad as could have been imagined right yeah. now. Uh, so that was what the book was, and it really used Ohio as sort of the case study of just how bad it is and how bad it looks when you live in one of these states and all the damage is being done. But as I finished the book and had conversations like the one I had with you, and people read it, I heard the same thing again and again, which is, "Oh my gosh, reading your book, although enlightening, was so painful mm-hmm. because what's happening is so disturbing." that I kept feeling like this is what people would tell me. I kept feeling like I had to skip to the end of the book because at the end I put some solutions about what people had to do. And I heard this so much that I thought, okay, I want people to read the first book to understand how bad it is. Yeah. But it's clear that people are desperate to know what they can do, so much so that they're skipping forward to get to that. And so that's when I decided to write what I've written now, which is, is this book we call Saving Democracy. And the, the subtitle is... A user's manual for every American. So the whole point of this book is to say, okay, once we have together understood how broken it is in these states, but that that is the front line of the attack on democracy. It's not mm-hmm. some sideshow. That's the front line for the Koch brothers in the mm-hmm. far right. That's where the Heritage Foundation is drafting anti-democracy laws and passing them. Once we see that, the truth is as bad as it is that that's the truth – It does empower people to do far more than they otherwise might ever do because it also means the states where you live, whoever your listeners are, wherever they live, that's where the attack on democracy is happening. Mm -hmm. So you don't just sit around and cheer for Jack Smith all day as if that's going to save the day. You don't only have to help John Fetterman win or Raphael Warnock. In your community, in your state is where the attack is or in a neighboring state, and there's so much more you can do about it than you ever imagined. And this book walks you through literally with – worksheets and like best practices. And it gives you organizations all the ways that once you realize that you're on the front line of democracy, that you can take action yourself. And that's really the point of the book.
0: What would be like, what's one example that someone can do, especially somebody who's working and they don't feel they have a lot of time, but they really want to do something.
1: That's what I, one of the things that I do in this book is say, you don't have to change your life Mm -hmm. to fight for democracy. You actually so much of the most powerful things you could do are within the life you already lead. In fact, I, I have a, every, every, every chapter, I have this little footprint, uh, sort of model I use, and I asked people to fill it out that if you actually take a look at your life now and you know, are you involved in any nonprofit activities? Mm-hmm. Think about your workplace. Think about where you go to church. Think about your neighborhood. The truth is rather than going in like, Thinking about democracy is another activity. Mm-hmm. Think about the things you already do and how those could be used hmm. to lift democracy. For example, if you're a volunteer at a food bank or a homeless shelter or you're on the board or you give, is that homeless shelter registering voters? Wow! And if it's not, right, yeah. incorporate registering voters into their mission, which is what they should be doing, and their voters are the very people being disenfranchised. So mm-hmm. that doesn't mean you're all of a sudden spending 20 hours a week you may not have. Right. You're self-registering voters. You're incorporating into things that you're already involved with. And and not only is that a great use of your footprint, but the truth is many of these institutions that are doing this work that can do it in, in a nonpartisan way are actually better able to get to, for example, the disengaged voters we need back in the democratic conversation. So whether it's you know the fact that you live in a district that no one's running and you, you, you convince a friend or someone else or yourself to run – Or it's that or you sign up as a poll worker simply for eight hours a day or you get involved in the school board censorship efforts. Many of these things, some will require more time and more energy and you put yourself out there. But others actually may be simply incorporating something into things that you're already doing. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah,
1: And some of those changes actually are, I believe, from after writing the book, are actually some of the biggest value adds you could bring.
0: Wow. God, you know, I mean, that's something that doesn't even occur to people. It certainly didn't occur to me. Um, it doesn't, I can't do anything about it because right now I'm, don't do anything. (laughs) I work from home and I'm always home. But, um, I, I, I'm just now thinking about the, the different places that I've worked and I would totally go up to the manager. I used to be a sales rep. I would be like, Hey, can we. Get our employees registered to vote i mean that that's totally. so easy to do and like you said it's not going to take any kind of time away from your your schedule already what's this is
1: brilliant absolutely i look back and this is why i'm not sitting here telling everyone else oh you should have done this, this or that i was a city council member years ago mm-hmm. back when democracy felt like it was as under attack as it is now but i didn't think at the time to- i just as an example i created as a city council member an Earned Income Tax Credit clinic where we would help people get the EITC, mm-hmm. but I never thought I should be doing that to make sure voters are registered. Right. And if you think about every, if you know, here's another way on in your footprint to make a difference. Do you know a city council member in your city? If you do, ask them. Are they using the footprint of that city? Every erection or every library, every you know, mm-hmm. city oh. hall itself, every health clinic. Are the people who walk into those doors of that of, – of the aspects of that city that serve the public, are they anywhere in that place being asked if they're registered to vote? Hmm. And if they're not, ask your council member. There is no good answer to why they're not doing that. They should be. Mm-hmm. And in many states like Ohio and other sort of red states with big blue cities, those are the very voters that are being suppressed by voter suppression. Hmm. And so that's another part of your footprint. It, this is not – my hope is for many – that, like you just said, this isn't some big lobbying effort. Mm-hmm. It's suggesting to someone who already serves these people, mm-hmm. hey, you could be using your city hall footprint to register tons of people or in states with a strict voter ID to give them information on how they get an ID. And, and, and I didn't think of that because I just, it didn't occur to me when right. I was a council member that the city should be doing that. Now it's clear to me that the cities of this country must do that. Mm-hmm. These are the voters being suppressed for very specific reasons. And the city halls of this country could play a massive role in getting a lot of these people back into the democratic conversation. Again, this, uh, this is a simple conversation. It's not 20 hours of your day, mm-hmm. but it's using if, – if on your footprint – and again, in my book, I ask people to fill out a sheet that's their footprint. If on your footprint one aspect is I know a council member, I know a mayor, I know a mm-hmm. school board member, use that little small part of your footprint to lift democracy. And all of a sudden, big changes can come from that.
0: Now, what about people who don't like? I don't know my city council person, but I know that I could look them up. So, would you suggest like online? You know, tweeting to them or sending them emails or calling? What would, would be the I'd best call, thing? I call
1: if it's if if you have a city that is in the middle of this, and you and you see you know, and and so much of the front line attacking democracy is is suppressing urban voters, uh, African American voters, voters of color, young voters, and so if you're in any city where that's happening. And you check around and you see that that city is not doing very much to, inc- to empower its own voters, which it should be, but often again doesn't think to do. Right Yeah, I would just look up your council member, even if you don't know them. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm, I was a council member. If someone had come to me with this, I, I would have thought, "My gosh, you're actually yeah. right. This <laughs> is a no-brainer. Yeah. It is a no-brainer, and it would you know, think about it this way. Republican sector of states in states like Ohio, like Frank LaRose, and the Republican state reps, they are spending so much of their time suppressing voters in these cities. So it's totally not only appropriate but necessary that if you represent the voters being suppressed, you fight back for them. Mm-hmm. And you fight back for them not through – you don't have to be partisan about it. Just make sure that whenever someone goes to a health clinic in, a, in the city of Cincinnati, at the end of the um, registration system – they're asked like they are the bmv Mm -hmm. oh by the way are you registered to vote oh you're not well here's a computer terminal here we can register you right here yeah no brainer easy and guess what thousands of people would be registered that otherwise are being purged um and and, and here's an example of me doing this myself i was at a fundraiser for a friend of mine a a few months ago and i of course as you can tell here got on my soapbox and (laughs) said don't just rely on the party to register people everyone here if you have if you are involved in any nonprofit, that nonprofit could do it. Mm-hmm. A guy came up to me after I said that and said to me, I used to be on the on the health commission that oversees the health clinics of Cincinnati, which serve tens of thousands of people largely in poverty, mm-hmm. uh, probably disproportionately African-American. And he goes, because you said that, I'm going to go to the health director wow. who I know. Guess what? The health director is already implementing what we just talked wow, about. It was, was so- because I brought it up. At a cocktail party yeah and the guy the guy thought as i said it well i i'm i have that as part of my footprint and he went and did it and if they do that robustly mm-hmm. we're talking about thousands of people who are the very people that are being suppressed and kicked out of the democratic conversation so it's just one small example of of how much you can make a difference that most people just as as we've talked about they don't really think about this part of it they think yeah. voter registration is, you know, standing in a public market somewhere and chasing down right. people to yes. see if they're registered. That's good too. Right. But incorporate it into all the other things that are yeah. that people are already doing and you really do a lot more.
0: Wow. And I really just with that one I have not read your book um yet, because I will. Um but and, and just FYI, my mother uh is a huge fan of your book, Labor- Laboratories oh, of Autocracy. I mean she's always going on and on about it, so I just had to get that in there. But um, I think everybody needs to read this book, you know, because as we all know especially if, if you're listening to this show i know you're a political junkie and you you know you're probably on social media and you're doing what you can but sometimes we feel like what else can i do god this is such this one suggestion is so monumental and it could just make the difference so absolutely i'm going to be getting this book i'm going to be reading it and sharing all of your really great suggestions awesome. because Thank you. we need to do this and i think i want to reiterate this before i ask you my next question that um you know of course we feel that it's important for the democratic party to you know to message in a way that is satisfying and gets people to vote and and sometimes the democratic party does it really well and sometimes it doesn't but i think you know it's not always it's not the party um that sets the tone of the messaging it's usually outside groups i mean people like frank luntz who is a Republican strategist was, you know, figuring out all kinds of different messages and, and, and you know, narrating what was going on. Um, and we have that on our side, too, because we have different groups, whether it's Midas Touch or really American or, you know, certain individuals who are, who are setting the tone. But I, I just think that people forget that we are the message. It's the voters who are the message. Right. And, you know, I had a, a communications expert here the other day, and she was talking about how... Biden is doing a pretty good job of talking about what he's accomplished, but we're not always, you know, spreading that message for him. And so I would really like to reiterate that. Please spread the message of accomplishments because Democrats get shit from us when they don't do it. And then when they do do it, it's not sexy. So we don't retweet it. We retweet the stuff Mm -hmm. that is, you know, makes us fearful or angry or whatever. So. I just want to put that I'm going to, I'm going to keep saying this because we have to retweet anybody or or amplify anybody who is talking about the positive accomplishments of the Democratic Party especially during the Biden administration. So, Yeah, I,
1: I agree with that and it's funny. I put I have a whole chapter on messaging and going on offense message with messaging. And I quote Simon Rosenberg who's <laughs> always him. out there. And yeah. He he makes the point that he was in the Clinton war room. Yeah. And every day their goal was to win the message battle of the day. Mm-hmm. And back then the war room was 15 people and then they would try and get all their message out to the reporters and everything else. Well, you're in these days, you're all in the war room. All yeah. your listeners, you, I, we're all in the war room because we have an ability to get a message out to mm-hmm. the people who listen to us. And so, absolutely, you know, my whole point, point is to say every single person can play a role. And that includes engaging voters, like we talked about, but includes communication. So Mm -hmm. you have a universe that listens to you. Um, Some are total insiders, so maybe it's repetitive for them, but but it may be a lot of people who know that you're the political one and they're not. And so every time you carry that message forward through a retweet, through a Facebook post, whatever else, it's really important, and you don't know how you might be breaking through uh in terms of what could otherwise be a cloud of confusion so yeah. absolutely we are all in the messaging war room millions of us and if we all do it well it makes a difference
0: yes it does okay we have to take a quick break but we'll be back after this message hey this is kimberly if you're not already my patron just visit patreon.com startmeup start me up you can take a look at all the tiers and decide how you want to support the show thank you so much Now, I want to ask you, uh, you know, in your your book, Laboratories, you talked about how the Koch brothers, the Republican Party specifically, focused on, you know, these these, um, local and state elections. And why is it the Democrats have been so passive in letting the Republicans take over? And not just in the red, but the purple and uh, I'm sorry, not just the red, but purple state governments. I mean, what is it about the Democratic Party that they were just allowing that to happen?
1: There's so much to say here, and I, I don't want to ruin the show. But i only talking about this. But I, I'll just mention a few real quick. Okay. One, you know, that's just a blame, but we have naturally a default of federal because to our credit, the biggest wins for democracy have generally been federal legislation. Yeah. So of course we think, you know, we want another Voting Rights Act. We want this yeah. and that, and that has been, and that often is the most powerful sort of place to get big things done. So that's sort of how we think. And Mm -hmm. and that's totally understandable. And by the way, it's also true. So when we have federal power, we better use it. And sometimes we don't. So that I think is one reason. Another reason is that we often, I think more the Koch brothers understand power. Mm -hmm. They don't care as much about some candidate who's going to inspire them and, and, you know, make us all feel great about everything. The, The Barack Obama celebrity style candidate. And I worry the Democrats are more often looking for that type of super charismatic leader, which often is only going to show up in, in Senate or presidential races. The Koch brothers don't care about the people. They care about power. Right. If they have the most unimpressive, potentially scandalous, you know, not very good candidate in a state house seat, voting the right way, they're happy. Mm-hmm. And we need to start seeing this as about power and how you get it and how you use it as opposed to being really picky and only getting excited when someone is an Obama level, you know, super duper candidate. Um, So that's some of it. I mean, another is and this is, uh, I think, one of our our blind spots. And I go through this in detail in the book. Those who care about democracy for for a long time until very recently, we've sort of assumed democracy was intact. We didn't think it was in trouble. The other side not only know the other side has a different view. This is why they're going to Hungary to study Orban. They know not only can democracy – they not only know that democracy is unstable. They know the ways to make it unstable, and they know that they need to be unstable. Why? Because they know that their viewpoint is largely a minority world viewpoint, often Mm -hmm. toxic. It can only survive in a world of weakened, subverted democracy. They know that if they had an election on their issues repeatedly – on an even playing field like abortion bans and crazy gun laws and trickle economics they know they would lose yeah. so while we are sort of confident that we can win in a democratic system they are actually correct that they can only win in a non-democratic system mm-hmm. which is why their focus so quickly becomes about using state houses hmm. because they are the perfect places to undermine democracy if mm-hmm. that's your goal we have been thinking, well, democracy's fine, so let's just win federal offices and get things done. So I think their, their game plan is all about it, and we didn't think that it was an essential part of our game plan because we just – we think democracy is doing just fine, and we want to get big things on the federal level. So I think they started 30 years ago. Now that we understand, mm-hmm. which I think it's happening that democ- you see the polls that people clearly waking up to this mm-hmm. my gosh democracy itself is in trouble yeah. hopefully that makes people realize well if that's true and it is you got to get to the state houses too because that is where the damage is being done uh, and the final thing i think that's happened is um there, there's more to it than i about to say because i don't want to go too long but i also think that now we reached a point where we just think well there are some states that they're just not worth competing in because we've lost them, right. and that also really rewards the other side's mm-hmm. tactics. And and you know you look at Missouri and you know Missouri voted for Clinton, Iowa and Indiana voted for Ohio, for Obama. So did Ohio. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you quit on states because you don't think you can win them is you don't only lose them in the future; they become extremist mm-hmm. because the only people there are extremists. And so I think the other reason why we're not getting into these states and fighting it out is we've reached a conclusion at certain points that they're unwinnable, and every dollar that would be spent in that state is a waste of money versus going to another state. And in the end, that's not only a self-fulfilling prophecy of losing, but it actually fuels the extremism that's making these states worse and worse even though they weren't – they were blue not that long ago. So I think it's it's a combination of all those things that we just have to figure out how to change because – The damage done by not only not focusing on state house-level races but even more giving up on entire sections of states and entire states altogether, the damage done by that is enormous to democracy, and it's what's fueling the extremism. So all the reasons that got us into this mess, we just need to figure out – this is why I wrote this book. It's all problematic. The consequences that are playing out every single day from Florida to North Carolina, Tennessee to Ohio, are all a result of this decision we've made not to engage in these places, so we better get back in them as quickly as possible with a long-term plan.
0: What would you say are some of the worst state abuses going on now?
1: I mean, it's such a, it's such a competition, race <laughs> yeah, to the dude. bottom. <laughs> it's like a different state takes the lead every week. Yeah. Um, you know, Ohio is truly in the world of lawlessness. I mean we are living – you know as a, as a lawyer, and I should probably stop thinking as much as a lawyer since the rule of law is disappearing in many places. I don't think any state is living in a land more lawless than Ohio where the current legislature is in office on a map that is in violation of the Ohio Constitution. Wow. If we saw that another country, we'd say, well, they're not legitimate. The, yeah. the Constitution is, is what gives them their power. Uh, how can they be in office? Well, that's what the situation we're in. Uh, they drew themselves a map. It was struck down many times. They simply ignored the orders long enough to get themselves one of those unconstitutional maps. So it, everything flows from that illegitimacy, you know, mm-hmm. all the things they're doing around you know, abortion bans and now trying to change the Constitution. So it's pretty bad here. Mm-hmm. Florida – is what's interesting my book is largely about state houses usually it's the gerrymandered state house members that are sort of the lowest common denominator of the state becoming extremist what's interesting about florida is in, in a weird way as bad as it is it's almost helpful desantis has become sort of a representative of how bad these states have gotten in what he's doing which normally is better hidden because it's some state house member no one's ever heard of. Mm-hmm. So Florida's going off in all the crazy directions of, of, of every other state, but it's actually more high profile because it's a guy running for president and not simply some anonymous state house member that no one's ever heard of. Yeah. In my book, though, I go through many other states, and one of the real measurements of how broken these state houses are is how many people are not being challenged in their next election. And so this is where when you saw the Tennessee chaos a few months ago, I was just finishing up a book. And this is the, I'm glad I hadn't finished it yet because this compelled me to go figure out, well, how many people and how many of those Tennessee Republicans who voted out the two Justins did not face opposition in the prior election? And the number was 50 percent, basically half of them wow. didn't even now that is bro- not only are they gerrymandered, which is bad enough, 50 percent of them waltzed back into office having been extremists without even a challenge. And I put an entire chart in my book because once I found that, I thought, okay, we got to do this for every state. Mm-hmm. And so you can also measure the lack of health of these democracies based on how many incumbent extremists face no opposition, which is almost in every state, double digits, often 50%, sometimes more normally than twenties and thirties. And then you add up the millions of people that that means are living in a world with no democracy where they live, the statehouse level, we're talking about tens and tens of millions of people. And so you get a real sense – you get a sense really quickly. You know, Georgia, I think it was like 40. Florida, dozens. Texas, dozens. Ohio you know, had 19, which is actually low compared to the states. And what happens in all these states, and this is why they all look so bad, is once you're in a world where these people – don't even face elections at that level. Every incentive that they face in their political life is the opposite of what would lead to good public service. One, there's no connection back to the people anymore. They're essentially reappointed. The people have no say. They're not public servants. Bad public outcomes do nothing to damage their careers. So you see, in many states, you know, they're giving away the public school money to help some private company. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're giving away, you know energy bailouts that the ratepayers pay for why do they do those things because the private players reward them and the public can't stop them because they're so gerrymandered they don't even have opponents the other big incentive that's all screwed up is you normally would have some incentive to be mainstream if you never face an opponent your incentive is to be extreme because that's how you avoid a primary so in all these states the reason they're all acting the same way one week one's worse than the other but they're all doing the same direction is all the incentives in these states are upside down, and they encourage extremism. They encourage giving away public goods to the private, and they f- finally encourage further attacks on democracy because if you're too extreme and you're giving away the public good to the private, you would never get reelected unless you mm-hmm. continue to have a jury mayor district. Yeah. So they have to keep attacking democracy. So it's a race to the bottom, and there's, there are several dozen states that are all in the middle of that race taking leads at various times. Yeah.
0: What, what, I mean, you talked a little about what we can do as voters, but what would you say the Democrat, the Democratic Party can do right now to turn things around in the
1: states? The, the most important thing. So one, when we're in office, as we were in 2011, 2022, now the book's all about what everyone can do, but when we're in office, we need to protect democracy in states, Mm -hmm and to my eternal frustration that did not happen between 21 and 22 when it could have Mm -hmm. and i think from the very beginning biden and and schumer should have been very clear with their members you want anything with infrastructure or anything else we are going to pass a 2021 voting rights act that not only protects voters but protects against gerrymandering Mm -hmm. and i worry that by not doing it then we might have really hurt ourselves for years my hope is if we have a big year in 24 mm-hmm. that we can the first thing we do after winning in 24 is do that so <sighs> the democratic party must in every member that's got to be an essential part and no the filibuster has no business standing in the way of laws to protect democracy mm-hmm. so i think that's that's sort of big picture in the end the federal government can play a massive role in stopping what's happening i believe they have a constitutional obligation to protect democracy in states So that's that's something everyone from Joe Biden on down should be committed to from the first moment we ever have federal power again. But number two, what I would say is um, the way I put it sort of gently in the book is right now we do not have an infrastructure that values running everywhere. We have an infrastructure that values running in swing states for federal reasons, for federal races, and that infrastructure – ends up literally accepting, as business as usual, leaving hundreds and hundreds of districts uncontested all around the country. And we simply can no longer live with this infrastructure. It's not working. The extremism is is, is, in, is in a downward spiral. In an infrastructure that doesn't value running everywhere, we can win the Senate, the House, and the presidency, and all the damage that's being done will continue in all the states you, we, we've been talking about. So if you can win all your goals and you're still losing the battle against extremism, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And so the Democratic Party and there's a, I go through in the book a lot of examples. There are really good examples of of operations and infrastructure building from the grassroots level that is getting uh, making progress and convincing people to run everywhere and support them everywhere and engage everywhere. And right now it's sort of a bottom up thing, which is a good start. Mm-hmm. We have to scale it up massively, and that involves the highest levels of the Democratic Party saying, oh, you know that operation that encouraged people in this state to adopt that state, and that's one reason we won Pennsylvania, we won Michigan. We need a lot more of that, and we need to send small-dollar donors that way as opposed to only sending them to win the next U.S. Senate race we're all talking about. So there's a lot of – the good news is – and I I write this book with optimism, although a lot of the topic is dark. 22 – Not only do we have wins in places we normally wouldn't have in a midterm, but some of the key pieces of infrastructure that led to those wins are really starting to show their stuff. And I go through in the book you know, on some of these chapters, if you want to do this, there's an organization doing it. You can join them. You can help them. You can raise support for them. And so I think for the Democratic Party, it's basically scaling up as quickly and as large as possible – An infrastructure that starts to say, hey, we value running everywhere. We don't only care about races that happen to determine the outcome of the U.S. House or Senate, but we value races that bring accountability to state houses that have not had accountability for a generation.
0: So I had Jamie Harrison on my show at the beginning of, I believe it was, I don't know, 2021, 22, I don't remember. Anyway, um, I'm – Number one, I want to know if you have his ear. And number two, um, do you think – are the Democrats right now – do you think they have an understanding that this is necessary to do this? Or do you think that they're still not getting
1: it? I, so I'm I'm a good friend of Jamie. He and yeah. I were both chairs together <laughs> at the same time. So I think he totally understands it, honestly. Like he was the chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party. Yeah, He knows all this stuff. He yeah. would have been dealing with – all the things i dealt with in the state house and all that. Um, I think it's a broader ecosystem problem. Gotcha. It's a broader sort of issue of, you know, in the big picture, how do you allocate the resources That's among was, many yeah. people demanding those resources? That's what I was going to say, because it, one of the yeah. complaints
0: he had was that they didn't have the money that they needed to do all the things they wanted to do.
1: Yeah. and I, I mean, there's a lot of money. I think it, I, I one, I don't think it's a zero sum game. I think that, you know, all of a sudden, one one thing to really praise the gra- especially the grassroots level democracy activists
0: mm-hmm.
1: when they think democracy is on the line boy do they respond yeah you know if you had said to someone well we don't have enough money for a Wisconsin Supreme Court race a, a 2 years ago you probably were right but once people realize oh my gosh that race could determine democracy in Wisconsin, which might affect the entire nation's democracy. Let's help that judge, even mm-hmm. though we never heard of her before. Mm-hmm. So the truth is, once people understand that democracy is at stake beyond Senate races, they actually do respond. Uh, so I think we have to do a better job of having that conversation that, hey, listen, of course we get excited when someone runs against Mitch McConnell. Let's help that candidate as mm-hmm. much as we can. But that's not the only way we're going to save democracy. Mm-hmm. It involves being a little more disciplined about state house races, Supreme Court races, in states. Secretary of State races. People got excited about last November. Yeah. Not a single election denier uh, won in a swing state because people got fired up. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's you know Jamie understands that, but I think it's literally everyone. And this is why I try to get my book out to anyone who will read it. Mm-hmm. Everyone on sort of the pro in the pro democracy ecosystem which I hope is more than Democrats, by the way, my hope is start to see that we need a pro-democracy plan and budget that's a little more responsible than just responding to the exciting Senate candidates of yeah. the year, of the cycle. And that means, sure, get, we need tens of millions of dollars in the hands of, of a share of Brown or even more. Mm-hmm. But also we need to be funding the state house candidates that never get funding, mm-hmm. and we need to have enough of an infrastructure that we're running in places we normally have been skipping for years, yeah. and that doesn't mean you have to change everything, but it means you have to have enough discipline to start being, you know, smarter about how you do that. I mean, who, who's an example of doing this? The Koch brothers. Right. They yeah. decided a, de- a generation ago. You know what? We want to win the presidency too, but we're going to put enough money into state house stuff that we're going to create this thing called Alec, and then we're going to control state houses. So mm. they understood. The need to do more than one thing and i think on our side it's got to be everyone from the dnc to uh you know the president to u.s senators all saying you know what this the current approach of federal basically myopia is not it may win as federal races and we've won a bunch but it's not really shoring up the heart of our democracy right because that's shaped elsewhere we've got to have a plan for that um, and so I, I think a lot of people see it, but the process of turning the ship so that you're actually building the infrastructure and funding to do that is the tougher part, I think, at this point for at least a lot of people.
0: Wow. So what, what would you say, um, as we head into 2024, aside from everyone should read your book, um, <laughs> what would you say we have to be optimistic about what should we be optimistic about? Uh,
1: so, if you not only should you read my book, <laughs> get, get to the last chapter. And okay. and by the way, I never want to say skip. If somehow and if this is true, never tell me. If you are so bored by chapter three, <laughs> skip skip to the last chapter. I don't think you will be, but skip okay. because <laughs> as I close, I am very optimistic because there are a couple things to be optimistic about. One. The kind of infrastructure that we need is starting to grow. We're not starting from nothing. The groups that made sure people were giving money to state house candidates in Michigan and Pennsylvania and others in the Minnesota Senate, those groups now exist, and they're getting better at what they're doing. There also are now faces to this, like Malik McMorrow and and our Tennessee legislators who spoke out, so people are starting to see what we're talking about. So there's some and – the, and those were historic wins. To win those state houses in a year where we have the White House, in a midterm where we have the White House, count, uh, that broke like decades and decades of precedent where you normally lose there. So the infrastructure is building. There's more and more of an attention to this, so there's momentum to build on. And then let's go to the other big piece. Normally, the, the way that – the so the, a big theory in the book is the Republicans are in the deep minority, and they know it, and they do everything they can to hide it. That's why Mitch McConnell told Lindsey Graham, don't you dare bring up a national abortion ban after DOPS. We'll lose everywhere if you do. Yeah. Mitch McConnell knew the Kansas referendum wouldn't end well. Yeah. They don't want straight-up votes on how extreme they are. They would lose. That's why they gerrymander. That's why they rigged the game to avoid that. Mm-hmm. That's why they suppress the other side. Well, their extremism is not hidden anymore. it's It's Marjorie Taylor Green being yeah. the face of that Congress. Wow. It's Ron DeSantis and Trump in an, in a downward spiral of extremism, a primary. So it's 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 abortion bans, no exceptions, post stops. We are going to have, if we're smart and we message right, we will have, in the next two years, a overall referendum on how extreme they are that's generally been hidden in the past that mm-hmm. they have hidden. Successfully. So if we have infrastructure building and those become the terms of the debate, I think there's massive opportunity. Now, here's here's my caution, though. Mm-hmm. We squander that opportunity if we only use it to reelect a president. Right. Of course we want to reelect a president. Yes. But it, with that opportunity and the stakes of that opportunity it, right in front of us… This is the year to make sure we have recruited to run in every district in this country. We are running for school board, pointing out that the opposition want to ban books this year. We're running for every district in Virginia this year. We're recruiting to run for every – because we don't want to have what happened in 20 where Trump extremism only really got taken out at the Trump level. Mm -hmm. And we did win state houses down the line because we didn't make it about those. We Mm -hmm. didn't even recruit in those. We have to take their extremism – And have a referendum on it on all levels of politics. And if you do that in 23, 24, then we start to gain momentum for democracy again. So the reason I wrote this book kind of urgently, which I did, isn't because I just wanted a book out there. It's because the time to start doing the work to take advantage of this moment Mm -hmm. is right this second. It's not late 24. It is right now building that infrastructure, Mm -hmm. engaging those nonprofits to register people, recruiting people. It, but if we do all that, I actually think we could actually have a, a banner, you know, winning streak for democracy building out of some of the success in 22.
0: So. Everybody needs to buy this book, and FYI, it makes a great gift, right? So whether it's Memorial Day or Labor Day or somebody's birthday or Thanksgiving or Christmas or (laughs) whatever holiday, whatever, or just a random, hey, I love you, here's a great gift. You can help save democracy. I urge everybody to get this book because it seems to be extremely important to saving the country that we all want it to be. Um, so, before I let you go, please tell everyone where to find you.
1: Okay. Well, because of the potential Twitter meltdown, I started <laughs> to sort of diversify my social media. But the, I still am most active on Twitter at David Pepper. Um, I do a lot of these whiteboard videos. Mm-hmm. But I also create, and you'll find this at Twitter, but I created a Substack, which I think is just David Pepper. And if you're interested in a little more of a long form of Twitter, I, I do a lot of that a few times a week. So, at Substack, um, if you go to underscore David Pepper in, on Instagram, and I believe it or not, I even created a – I'm on Spoutable. Okay. It's all at David Pepper. Apparently right. no one else – there are right. other David Peppers out there, but they don't <laughs> appear to be grabbing my name. Um, one of them is involved in NASCAR racing. another's wow. an environmental professor in England, but they don't seem to be grabbing the, 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 these monikers. Um, right. So David Pepper for Ohio is also at YouTube, and I even, believe it or not, Although I haven't figured out how to get it to go far, I created a TikTok not long ago, um, which I'm trying to figure out how to get all snazzy. But whiteboards don't seem to get the TikTok crowd excited. Even though they do on Twitter. <laughs> so those are the basics. And, right. and by the way, I did cr- one other thing. I also created a website tying into the book called SaveDemocracy.us. Okay. SaveDemocracy.us, and if you go there, you can not only buy the book, but a lot of the videos I do are available. And I even believe it or not, I'm very into these worksheets in the book. I mean, I literally say, fill this out. It's your footprint. It'll show you how to involve yourself in democracy in the ways we talked about. You can go to that website and download those footprints and print them out. Go to a meeting and pass them out for all, you know, and there's no cost to that. I just, my main goal, if it's not already clear, is if people were just read the book and put it down and do nothing, I've actually failed. Right. The whole point is it's a call to action that you can play a huge role. And if we don't all play a huge role, frankly, the scale of what's attacking us will win. We all have to fight back. And this book is one effort, at least, to try and show people how they can be most effective in doing so.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for writing it because it is so important. And, you know, I can't urge people enough. Buy his book. Um, Of course, you can find me on Twitter, author Kimberly, L-E-Y, Spoutable, Kimberly Johnson. My books are on Amazon. David, once again, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for writing the book. And everybody needs to go buy it.
1: (laughs) Thanks so much. Always fun talking to you. Take care.
0: (laughs) Bye-bye.